Well, we finally conclude our study, as we said last week, but we do conclude this week in the book of Malachi. And um, let's pray. Father, as we come to you in, in Jesus' name, we ask you that you would you would speak to us today. We ask, oh God, that you would come to us in power. Lord, we're not here to go through just an exercise. We're here to actually hear from you. We're here in this late hour in this nation, God, to be brought back to you. The seats in the churches are empty in northeastern Pennsylvania. They're empty. And God, we ask you for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that the saints of God have prayed in this area for many years for that to happen. We think of the revival that has happened in the past in this area, the Welsh revival that even affected Wilkes-Barre in a great way, 1904 and 1905. We ask you that you would do something here again that you would bring the fear of God into our hearts. That we would reverence you. Lord, we ask you that the front of this church would be filled with people weeping before you. We pray for a sense of awe and of holiness in this church. The holiness of God. Come again, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read again a lengthy passage of Scripture without apology this morning from Malachi chapter 3. Starting in verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, and do not fear me. We're talking this morning here about fear and no fear, a comparison between those who do not fear God and those who fear God. So here we have... We have in the text of Scripture here those who do not fear the Lord. No fear. We often talk about the fear of the Lord. It's a good thing. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. We talk about an unholy or an unhealthy fear. There is a fear that comes from man that is not of the Lord. And we are not to fear in that way. And so we pray. We say, God, come in, in the power of your Holy Spirit, your perfect love to cast out fear. But there is a right fear. There's a righteous fear. And there's a, a line of demarcation here between those who do not fear God and those who fear God. There's only two categories in this world. Two categories, those who fear God and those who do not fear God. 
And the Lord says, I, I'm, I'm going to come in judgment upon those who do not fear me. If, if, we, if we don't believe this, it, it shows us that really we don't fear God. When was, uh, when was the last time we thought about the Lord coming in actual judgment? The Lord coming with flames of fire. The Lord coming with his holy ones. The Lord coming in order to deal swiftly with sin. The Bible predicts this. And the Bible says that this is surely going to happen. And the Lord has come in judgment at different times in history. But he is going to come finally, a final time, with great judgment, with worldwide judgment. This is the judgment that God is talking about here in this text, this final judgment. This judgment that not only Malachi was waiting for, but also the entire world is still waiting for, even in this late hour. And so we preach Christ. This is real. This is real. When we are reading these texts of Scripture, we're not just reading information. There's going to come a day of judgment, and many millions, even billions of people are going to be utterly shocked that it actually happened. I saw something this past week in GQ magazine, the magazine that teaches men how to be really amazing. Said one of the books that uh, you do not need to read is the Bible. Skip it. It, it offers nothing. It's old, it's worn out. Myths from yesteryear. So grow a handsome beard. Be concerned about worldly pursuits. Eat, drink, and be merry. Sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. Look at whatever you want to look at. Talk however you want to talk. Do whatever you want to do, because that's all there is. God? A real God? Well, maybe a power out there somewhere far, far away, maybe at best. We live in such an agnostic, atheistic society. We not only know there's a God, but we know God according to Romans chapter 1. Every person knows God. Every person knows God. For although they knew God, that's what Romans 1 says, they did not worship him as God, but they traded him in like a car and served the creature rather than the creator. We live in a land of no fear. We live in an American church with no fear. 
We have so many professions of faith. Listen, listen very carefully. You, you can profess Jesus Christ and go to hell. We have so many people who are professing to be Christians and they're not Christians. We have lots. Many shall come in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not did we not profess your name? Did we not say we believed in you? Did we not say the sinner's prayer? Did we not sing in church? Did we not listen to sermons in church? Did we not pray? We prayed. We had all kinds of prayers. And we, we even knew how to say prayers. Lord, didn't we do all sorts of things for missions? Many shall come in that day and say, and say. It's not a profession. Saying you know Jesus doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Saying you know Christ doesn't mean you are saved. I think we would do much better if people would just come out and say, I'm not a Christian. And stop fearing man. Just that way we could get to where a person can actually be convicted of their sins in order that they might be a Christian. I believe it was Francis Schaeffer said, we need people to get unsaved before they get saved. We've inoculated so many people who believe that they're saved. And so this text, if anything that this text gives us, it's this line. It's this drawn line in the sand that shows us the difference between those who fear God, that is the ones who are saved, the ones who know the Lord, and the ones who don't. The one who knows the Lord fears the Lord. And loves to pray. Pray. We just looked at this this past Tuesday at Bible study. J.C. Ryle asked the question, he says this, do you pray? Then he goes on to say, "Not not do you say prayers, but do you actually pray? Are the concerns in your life brought to God in prayer? Prayer, real prayer, prayer of the Spirit, prayer in life. Not do you say prayers, but do you really pray? The Christian prays, they really pray. And you can tell, you can tell a Christian because you can say, I can go to that person And I know 
that they don't just pray in public, and they don't even just say prayers in private, but they really pray. They really get alone with God, and they really present all of their concerns before the Lord. They worship the Lord in private as well as in, in public. They really pray. You, you say, well, why, why, are we, why are we stressing this? Well, because the text stresses it. God's word stresses this difference. And because we don't want anyone in this room not to know God. We, we don't want anyone here to think that all along they were okay, and yet you are the one who is standing before God someday and you're saying, but I thought this, and I thought that, and I said this, and I said that. And God is going to say, but depart from me, for I never knew you. And do not fear me, verse 5, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. How are they? That What a beautiful text. He says here, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Consumed by what? The worries and the cares of life? The concerns and the problems that we go through? You're not consumed by those? No, no, that's not what he's saying here. You are not consumed by his judgment. That's the context of what it's being said. You are not consumed, O Jacob. You, you could be. You could fall under the wrath of God, O Israel, but you, you are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, verse 7, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me, because you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him. And those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and I strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The Lord is coming, and the Lord is going to come a first time. He is going to come suddenly to his temple, and that's exactly what he did. As Simeon and Anna were awaiting the coming of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ at this young age comes suddenly to his temple. But he's also going to come as judge. He comes the first time as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In fact, he says in his ministry that he had not come that time to judge, but he had come that the world might be saved. But there is going to come a time, and it comes with his second coming, when the Lord will judge. The question is, Israel has been evil And what is amazing is that the Lord has not already judged them. They had made promises to the Lord. Lord, we're coming back to you. And then they have failed. And at this time, they had fallen into lethargy and apathy. And there is not much true spiritual worship that is taking place in Israel. And the question is not just that the Lord is going to come and judge. But the question is, why hasn't the Lord already judged them? And by the way, this is a question that we should ask ourselves. We we don't think like this. Americans don't think like this. We don't wake up thinking, Lord, why haven't you already judged me for my sin? We have an attitude of independence that says, God, you owe me. God, you need to accept me as I am. God, I'm going to demand of you what I want to do, and you're going to accept me. We hear over and over again, if there is a God, he's this God of acceptance, and he's a God of love, and he just does whatever we want to do, and he just continues to wink at sin, and he doesn't really care. He's a moronic father in the heavens who's just kind of oblivious to everything that's going on. He has no clue what's going on. Just just kind of overseeing things, but he doesn't really see things. But the question, according to Malachi, is why hasn't God already brought judgment upon Israel? After all, they had made promises and then they had failed. They had said, oh God, and they had wept with tears. Oh God, we're going to do this, and oh God, we're going to do that. They had cried on the altar. The priests had cried. The people had cried. And yet none of it was true repentance. None of it was really real Regards to marriage, they were doing whatever they wanted with their spouses, leaving them. 
regard to worship, they weren't really worshiping God, but they were giving the cheapened sacrifices of praise, as we looked at. The blind lambs, the mutilated ones. We'll give that to God. He can, he can take that because really we're not even sure that there really is a God. By the way, the, the great secret with the Greek philosophers Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. We, we think of all these gods that the ancient Greeks worshipped. But the philosophic secret was this. There is no God. That's what they really believed. They said all this is just ridiculous. Of course, people wanted to have gods, and uh, as long as it was gods made in their image, they were quite fine with that. But in many ways, that's what had happened with Israel, even though they knew there was a true God. Listen, there is such a difference between knowing that there's a true God and really being awakened to worship him. To all of a sudden coming to a place of experiencing his love, experiencing his forgiveness, actually repenting before the Lord, not, not, not out of some kind of slavish fear, but out of awe of his love for who he is. God is, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not, loveth not God, in the King James, for God is love. And so what we need is an experience of him. My prayer for you today is if you've never really experienced God, that you would experience him. That you wouldn't just go through life just believing precepts and concepts and even truths, but never really experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. Never having the fear of God brought bare to your heart. You'll never be the same. I was thinking about this in preparation as I was crying out to God this morning for this, this, this morning's sermon. But what a fearsome thing it is to turn our life over. This is real. When you come before God, you're actually saying to the living God, Lord, I give my whole life over to you. I'm really doing it. Lord, I really am convinced that you're there. I'm convinced that I have now a fear of you. I'm convinced that you love me. I'm convinced that Christ has died for me. That's why at the nursing home, I plead with them. If you don't know Jesus, it's, it's time to meet him. You might be 80, 85, 90, but if you don't know the Lord, if you don't know the Lord, if you haven't experienced the Lord, to go into, a, to go into an eternity without Christ. Horrifying. So the question is here is, it's not, not is God going to judge? The question here is, why hasn't God already judged? 
I mean, the second we were born in sin, he could have just said, zap, holy God, sinful man. Why didn't he just wipe out Israel the second that they sinned in the desert when they fell into unbelief? That whole generation saved two. Why didn't God just zap them? Why, did, why doesn't God just come and, and zap us and say it's over? Because of his immutability. His immutability means that the Lord our God, he does not change. He isn't up one day and down the next. His nature never changes. He is who he is. He's ahead of us. We will never out advance God. We'll never get to the point in our life where we have moved ahead of God. Ha! 2018, 2019, 2020. Surely with all of our scientific advances, we have finally advanced past God. God says, I created you. Anything you discover is nothing to me. I gave you all that. All the materials to make rocket fuel and to make rockets, I made that. You're going to go to Mars? Uh, by the way, I made Mars. And man comes along and says, but we're smarter. We don't need this. We don't need God. How foolish. How stupid. So the question is, why, why, why hasn't God judged Israel? Verse 6, here's the answer. His immutability, for I, the Lord, do not change. That's why. Why haven't we been judged already? Why hasn't God brought judgment? The judgment of verse 5, because the Lord does not change. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. God says, I've made promises to you, Israel. And when I make a promise, I keep it. God says, when I give my word, I keep my word. The reason you haven't been brought into judgment already is because I made promises to your fathers that I would not consume you. I would not bring you into final judgment. I would not do away with you. What a merciful God, no matter what Israel did, no matter how many sins, no matter how many times of falling into unbelief, no matter what they did to him. God says, God says uh, because I don't change, because I gave you my word, I will never, Israel, I will never leave you nor forsake you, for I am the God who does not change. Why are we not consumed? Why is Israel not taken up in final judgment already? Because of the immutability of God, because of his constant faithfulness. He's the God who doesn't change. He's the eternal God. The God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. Look with me at Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 20. 
Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God says, I don't change. If I've spoken to you my faithfulness, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm not going to break my word. Lamentations chapter 3, if you flip over to Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why don't we sing that together? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. They are new. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. Why is Jacob not consumed? The faithfulness of God. Why, why isn't the world consumed yet in judgment? Why wasn't Israel consumed? You, O Jacob, because of the Lord's unchanging nature are not consumed? The same question we could ask of the Lord, Lord, why haven't you already um, why haven't you already judged the world with final judgment? Maybe maybe this is a good prayer that we could even say to the Lord, thank you, Lord. Thank you for not bringing final judgment yet, but thank you for your for your kindness to us. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3, if you flip there in your Bibles, talks a little bit about this coming judgment and why the Lord hasn't brought judgment yet to this world. Same answer, the immutability of God, the faithfulness of God, his unchanging nature. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, it says, You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now listen, here's what, here's what Peter says about the last days. 
there, there, are going, there are going to be uh, people who are going to come scoffing about this whole, this whole matter of final judgment. And it tells us, it tells us why they're scoffing. It, it's, not because, uh, it's not because this whole thing about final judgment is so unbelievable. It, it's because they want to follow their own sinful desires. So a person comes up with this thing and they say, well, either I'll profess God and not, not really be a true Christian, but I'll profess Christ because it gets me somewhere, at least in my life. But I'm going to continue to follow the worldly plan. I'm going to listen to the voice of the world. I'm going to live like the world. And by the way, that, that is a form of scoffing. Uh, the person who doesn't take this seriously, the person who doesn't really know the things of Christ, the person who doesn't actually pray, the person who lives for the things of the world, the pleasures of the world, they by their very nature and by the testimony of their life are scoffers. Then there's going to be other people who just come right out and say it. Look, I don't, all this I, I don't even believe. I don't believe in final judgment. I don't believe in, in Christ coming again. All of this stuff, as GQ tells us, we don't even need to read the, the Bible. This is the one book that we can definitely put down and pick up the Xbox. But it tells us why. The reason why is that because... People are following their own sinful desires. They want to do what they want to do. That's the real reason. People are saying, I want, I want to follow my own life. They might give all sorts of different answers, and they're very meticulous in the way that they answer. But the truth is, what they're saying is, but I want to do what I want to do. That's what verse 3 says, following their own sinful desires. Then they, then they say things like this. Verse 4, they say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So they say, listen, um, the sun came up today. It's the same thing as yesterday. You know, people living around seem to be doing just fine. I don't want to take all this too, too seriously. So where, where, is, where is all this? You've been talking, listen, you've been talking about coming judgment now with Malachi for, uh, for over 2,400 years. That's a lot of birthdays. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water, and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment. This is the judgment Malachi is talking about, and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved. Don't overlook this fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. So if the Lord counts days like a thousand years since, the, since Christ came the, the first time, we're talking two days. Short time. See, it's been a long time, not for the Lord. We haven't even hit half week yet. We haven't even hit Wednesday. A thousand years is one day. Verse 9. Now, here he gets exactly what... What Malachi is telling us why we are not consumed. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, 
as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's desire and his aim is for us to repent before he comes in judgment. His desire is for us to really get right with God. And the only way to get rid of worldliness in our heart is actually to get right with God, to come to a place of repentance. And so the Lord preaches through the prophets. He preaches uh, through his apostles. He preaches through preachers. He preaches through dads. And he preaches through moms and sisters and brothers and fellow church people, people who know Christ. And he says, this is the day to repent. The moment you enter into life with Christ, your life will never be the same. It's going to be very different because you're going to have a holy war for the rest of your life against the world. You're going to be put into a category of Christian, and there's only two kinds of people in the world, Christians and non-Christians. In fact, that's what the Lord says here in this, in this text, is he now takes us in Malachi to show us two different categories. In fact, he wants us to understand that there is a real distinction. There's a distinction between those who are saved. They're, listen, I, I've been talking and thinking a lot about this lately, but we're not like unsaved, then 10% saved, and then 20% saved, and then we get up to 50% and our salvation meter finally hits 90%, and then we really get it. Oh yes, there is this whole process of sanctification. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell us out salvation, and he changes us, and he makes us more and more like Christ day by day. And yes, there are setbacks, and yes, there are sins, and there are issues in our life that we continue to present before the Lord. But don't be deceived. There, There is... There is no third category. There is not Christian, unchristian, and kind of Christian. There, there, there is not fifty uh, percent Christian, almost Christian. There's either it's either Christian or non-Christian. That's the only two categories in the world. That's it. Those who possess the Holy Spirit and those who do not have the Holy Spirit. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, if you do not have the Spirit, those who do not have the Spirit, says, are none of His. And the Lord is always bringing us in, in the Scriptures back into these categories. And we have such an issue today with this in, in the church. It's like, well, I'm kind of saved. Like saying, I'm kind of human. What does that mean? Categories. The Lord makes a clear distinction here in this text of categories. Black and white. Black and white categories. Chapter 3, verse 18. In fact, he says this very clearly. Notice this, chapter 3, Malachi. Then once more you shall see the distinction. There it is. Chapter 3, verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. So God is setting this up. He's saying there's a difference. There's a difference between righteous people and wicked people. Let me just say this by 
way of passing. Do not be deceived by profession. The righteous and the wicked. Here it is again. Between the one who serves God and does not serve him. So we could say here that the categories are this. Righteous versus wicked. Serves God. Does not serve God. Fears God. That's also in this text. Fears God and does not fear God. This is, uh, this is where we get that language uh, from. We get it from the scripture of the person who serves God. The person who says, I have given up serving myself and I serve God. The person who has given up fearing the world and now fears God. The person who has given up on their own righteousness and has now been given the righteousness of Christ and is no longer wicked. There was ever a description of a believer, it's somebody who serves the Lord. In fact, Acts chapter 9, verse 6, if you go over to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Saul, as uh, our dear friend Dan Carey said this morning, talking about Syria and Damascus. Saul is radically converted. He's on the road to, to persecute Christians, to throw them in jail, to approve even of their, of their death. And by the way, it's often said that Saul's name was changed to Paul. His name was never changed to Paul. It's simply a, a, a matter of Greek translation of from Hebrew, the name Saul to Greek is, is Paul. In the Old Testament, we see where God comes and he actually changes the name of a person. He says to Abram, I'm, I'm now changing your name to Abraham. Or he says to Jacob, I'm now changing your name to Israel. That's, that's not what is happening here. His name is Saul. In fact, in the Hebrew, his, his name would still be Saul to this day. But he's persecuting the Lord. And in verse 5, he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 6, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. If there's anything that could be said of Paul, he was one who served God. He was one who said, I'm going to do whatever the Lord says I, I'm to do. That's that's. That's a definition of somebody who serves God, somebody who follows after him, somebody who actually does what God says to do. But God comes along and he said, I'll give you a couple examples because the people of Israel seem really confused on how. God, we, we are religious people. We have the professions of faith. We're even going to the temple. We're doing all these different things. How, how do we not fear you? How are we not serving you? How are we not righteous? Well, the Lord gives a couple examples. Notice verse 7 of Malachi chapter 3. He says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So God is saying, I have given you these rules. I've given you these statutes. I've given you these laws. You've not kept them. Return to me. Now, this is shocking for them because they're thinking, we have returned to you. We're in. 
We're your people. And yet God is saying, return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? They're confused. Lord, how do we return? We've already returned. Lord, we thought we're in the in club. We thought you accept us. We're your, we're your Jewish people. We're Israel. And God now gives a couple examples in showing them how they have not returned to him and how their hearts are actually still far away from him. The first example he gives is that they are robbing God in their tithes. He says, you, you, you say all the right thing, but here, here's an example of, of how you're not following me. He says, uh, you're robbing God. Verse 8, well, man robbed God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? So they're going, how? we're not sure how we've, we've, we've robbed you. We don't, well, we've robbed you. How do you rob God? We didn't know we picked your pocket. Lord, did we ever enter your house with a club and rob you? And God, God's saying, yes, you, you've robbed me. How? How have you robbed me? In tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. God is saying, don't just bring in little offerings. I think I got 50 cents here for the Lord. Lord, that'll, that'll take care of you. Remember the doctor that we go to telling a, a joke about uh, what God can keep in the offering plate and said, basically, you just throw the offering up into the air and whatever, whatever sticks to the ceiling God can have. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the spirit here. God will just will kind of give you whatever we, we want. God is bringing this down to what they actually do, not what they're just saying. God is saying that you're not bringing to me the full tithe. Now, for the Israelites, it was more like 23 and a third percent of their entire income because they were under the civil economy of Israel. But the same could be said of us today. The Bible talks about us bringing a tithe. A tithe simply means tenth. That the first tenth, it's not even the last tenth. It's not like we pay all the bills and then we go, well, do we have a tenth left? And we, then we write the check finally to God. Some people say, well, I'll start at 1%, work my way up to 3%. And God would come along to Malachi and say this. He's, he's saying, but you're robbing me. Somebody owes you $50, and they say, but we're just going to give you 30 You wouldn't say, well, that, that's okay. God, God says you need to bring in the full tithe into the storehouse. And he says, by the way, put me to the test. If there's an area that you can test God, not test him in a, in a wrong way, in an unrighteous way, but to test him in this matter of the tithe. He says, if you will begin to trust me in this issue of the tithe, in the issue of this 10%, he says, see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you which you cannot even contain or that you cannot even receive. So the Lord, is, the Lord is challenging his people here. He's saying, this, this is how you are robbing me. Verse 11 says this, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Let me just say this by, by way of passing. We, we need to be challenged before the Lord to bring in the full tithe just as the Israelites were. For us, it's a tenth. That principle was laid down uh, before the law of Moses was given. It was a principle that Abraham practiced. It was a principle that, that Jacob practiced. 
And God says here, if, if you bring in the full tithe, if you'll trust me, he says, I will rebuke the devourer for you. Now, we could say that this is just pestilence and bugs and that kind of thing in their, in their crops and in their field, but, but it's more than that. It's even a, a demonic devourer. The scripture is, is very clear that oftentimes what people say is, I can't afford to tithe, can't afford it, and so I'm going to withhold from God what is rightly his. I'm going to withhold it. And what happens is instead of being blessed, they, they think that they're getting an extra 10%. And actually the Lord is saying, but I'll allow things in your life to be devoured. And by the way, I've seen this over and over again in Christians' lives. When somebody says, I'm, I'm not going to give the full tenth, or I'm not going to give anything, or if I give anything, it'll be very, very small. And they're always wondering, why, why, why can we never pay for this? Why can we never take care of that? Why is this always a problem? Why is this always broken? It seems like everything is always going wrong. And so instead of waiting until we finally hit the payday, God is saying to us, God is challenging us, he's saying, in your poverty even, or in your poor state, if you will trust me and you will come to me with the tithe and present that before the Lord, I, I will bless you, I will bless you, and you will be blessed. The second thing he says, and we're, we're coming close to a, a closing, he says this, you have spoken against me, verse 13, but how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So he says this, the second thing. Here, here's what people are saying. We don't get it. We don't get the benefit of, of following the Lord. I mean... It seems like those who follow the Lord are as in as much trouble as those who don't. That's what they're saying. That's how they're speaking against the Lord. And it seems like those who don't follow the Lord actually are oftentimes better off. That, that's the complaint here against the Lord. People are standing back going, I don't get this whole purpose of singing and weeping before the Lord and and giving to the Lord and, and really following him with a whole heart. What's the whole purpose? I know people aren't doing any of that, and they seem to be doing just fine. That person, listen, that person with that kind of spirit is the definition of no fear of God. So these are the categories. Those who don't fear him, these are two examples, and we could elaborate a lot more on that, but we're going to leave it there. And here's the category of the righteous. A book of remembrance, as they're talking, verse 16, uh, is written before him. Those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. The Lord remembers those who say, Lord, I don't, I don't understand all that's going on. Listen, I don't understand all that's going on. But I trust you. Lord, I, I don't understand. It seems like the, the wicked and the righteous, it seems like sometimes the, the, the wicked or the unrighteous, I mean, it seems like they're oftentimes even better off. I don't, is this all worth it? And the righteous person says, even though I don't see it all, 
I'm going to trust you. Here's the promise. Close with this, verse 2 of chapter 4. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go leaping like calves from the stall. That's the promise. Do you believe it? Two categories. Those who fear. Those who don't fear. Those who believe and believe by their actions, not just their words. Those who are under the blessing of God. Those who are under the judgment of God. This, this whole life is this journey. And it is a journey with obstacles and Oftentimes we look at this and we, we can sympathize with what the people are saying. They're going, we don't get all of this. But the one who trusts God continues to plug away. The one who, Jesus said it like this, the one who endures. Why do you use that word endures? The one who endures to the end shall be saved. Endure. You don't have to endure just great times. It's the one who endures to the end. The one who perseveres to the end. I'd like you to stand with me as we close. If I could ask the worship team if they'd come forward, we're gonna. If we could close with the last song we sang this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us so clearly in these stark terms. You tell us you make a distinction. And God, we pray that we would be found, by your grace, to be found faithful to you. And we thank you that that's only possible because you're faithful to us first. We're not consumed, O oh God, because of your faithfulness. Jacob is not consumed because of the steadfast love of God in Christ. And I pray our hearts would be uh, open to what you have spoken this morning. That you would uh, help us, enable us to be people of fruit. We'd be doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.